Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, presenting informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host, and the show, which began in September of 2019, was formally known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. The library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Seniors Straight Talk and can be downloaded on all popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers Channel. So please remember to like, click, and share the episodes. And for those listeners who are in what I say SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched, watch out for my upcoming free Caregiver Distress Recovery Challenge helping caregivers find a path to bringing much-needed self-care into their daily routine. And it features Empathy, my newly registered trademark, which is also the basis of a self-care commitment letter and teaches strategies from my proprietary framework for self-care, self-kindness, self-compassion, and self-forgiveness that will help you feel recharged and re-energized as you face life's challenges. Family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. And the book addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities in nursing homes, and assisted living residences. And I'm beyond honored that Dr. Bill Thomas wrote the foreword for the book. So I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. And I'm hoping to have an audio version of the book in the near future. Senior Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. So Senior Straight Talk and the Pass It On Network continue bringing listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And I'm thrilled that Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California, is a Senior Straight Talk sponsor. Olive Community Services is dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a friend, colleague, and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And now for today's guest, who I have had the privilege of interviewing on two previous occasions. And I'm thrilled he was able to carve out some time for another conversation on Senior Straight Talk. Dr. Mike Wasserman is a geriatrician who has devoted his entire career to serving the needs of older adults. From the beginning of the COVID pandemic until now, he has been a tireless advocate for vulnerable older adults, for healthcare workers, and of course, for the COVID vaccine. His consistent and passionate tweets have earned him a sort of media celebrity status. 
He's been interviewed on MSNBC, CNN, and ABC7 News in California, and is frequently quoted in print media. Dr. Wasserman has served as a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a framework for equitable allocation of vaccine for the novel coronavirus committee. And he's also editor-in-chief of Springer's upcoming textbook, Geriatric Medicine, a person-centered evidence-based approach. Previously, he served as chief executive officer for Rockport Healthcare Services, overseeing the largest nursing home chain in California. And prior to that, he was the executive director for Care Continuum, a health services advisory group, the quality improvement organization for California. In 2001, he co-founded Senior Care of Colorado, which became the largest privately owned primary care geriatrics practice in the country. So Mike, without further ado, um, here we are again. I'm so thrilled that you were able to carve out some time because you are so incredibly busy. It's hard to get you. Well, it's, all, it's always a pleasure to be back and uh, speak to someone who not only speaks the truth, but speaks the truth from the perspective of living uh, and working in, in the real world that, that we've been dealing with. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, I think that is, to, to be honest, an important perspective that I bring to the conversation. Uh, working in over 50 skilled nursing facilities now and uh, really having an on-the-ground experience, uh, as you have, as being a, a CEO of a, a large nursing home chain. And yeah, just nutrition. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, these days, having that background and experience is, um, a blessing and, and a bit of a curse in terms of uh, the underlying knowledge of how the industry actually functions. Right. Um, do you want to talk about that a little or no? Actually, I, you know, I always happy to from the perspective that as policymakers develop policies and regulators develop regulations, to do it in a vacuum without understanding all the different facets of the industry can only lead to imperfect solutions. And, you know, it's been, someone asked me the other day, if you had one message, what would it be? And I actually was pretty proud to be able to say, you know, I've been delivering one single message since March of 2020, which is engage the experts in geriatrics and long-term care medicine in policymaking at the federal, state, and local level. And, and I, don't, I don't mean ask them for their recommendations, because during a pandemic, recommendations are good maybe for 24 hours. Right, <laughs> I agree. But have the experts in the room as you're discussing as you're developing policies. And honestly, I think that's been lacking in many places and some of the confusion, uh, some of the missteps are because we haven't included the experts. So um, I think, you know, going back to what I said, you cannot make these sorts of policy decisions in a vacuum. And, and I think our policymakers are too used to making their decisions uh, in in a 
in a background, in a, in a vacuum that's kind of thrust upon them by politics and stakeholders and everything else. I, I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. Um, I would also advocate, and I'm not talking about me personally, but I would actually also advocate that they involve people who are living the experience, um, clinicians, um, you know, whether they're therapy clinicians, nurses, uh, you know, people who are really living the experience on a day-to-day basis because, you know, I I mean, as um, I remember early on many years ago, but also about a year and a half ago when there were certain changes that were made for reimbursement. And I could see what the pitfall was going to be like at the get-go. And I think if there were people in the room who can give, you know, insight into that perspective, um, maybe there would be ways of, you know, making decisions that would maybe ameliorate some of, some of, those, some of those pitfalls. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the other thing, you know, going because you're always tweeting about the vaccine and the pandemic and and there's a whole question now about mandating the vaccine and should we be doing that? And does that violate people's rights? Whatever. And, um, you know, before we started, I said that I wanted to say that I don't know if people are aware. And I was just telling this to somebody in the neighborhood the other day. And when I told it to her, she had no idea because she's not a healthcare worker. So she wouldn't know this information. But as a healthcare worker who, who works in nursing homes, um, if I go into a place that where I haven't worked before um, and I haven't had a PPD vaccine within a year, um, a PPD test, you know, I have to take one, whether I like it or not. I, and there are some places that require you to take it six weeks apart. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback about that. And then there were certain segments of the population, but there was a period of time they were really pushing that. I personally do not take the flu vaccine for whatever reason. You probably would not be happy to know that, <laughs> but, but I don't. And as soon as I walk into a building, I have to say whether I take it or not. And if I decline it, if it's flu season, I have to be wearing a mask every moment that I'm in the building from the beginning of flu season until the end. And then I also have to present all these vaccines that I have to, that I've taken. And if I need updates on any of them, I have to do that. So it's not as if healthcare workers don't have to present certain aspects of, you know, or, or abide by certain requirements and present aspects of their health and well-being. No, and, and look, children have to be vaccinated before being allowed to go to school. So this is, look, I, I think many of us scratch or have scratched our heads as to why um, our country has not followed many of the things it's done many, many times before in terms of this epic once-in-a-lifetime tragedy that has killed over 600,000 people here and, you know, millions around the world. I get it. So what do you, do you think that uh, all healthcare workers should be mandated to take the vaccine? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I've said, and, and, you know, it's really been interesting how the ebb and flow of media interest has occurred during this pandemic. Yes, it um, 
once the vaccine knocked the nursing home resident and staff um, death rate way down, the interest in nursing homes kind of went away. Correct. Um, but now with the Delta variant and the reporting of outbreaks again in nursing homes, um, the, the media comes a calling again. And um, interestingly, I, when Delta started back in the late spring, um, and, and actually right at the beginning of June, I tried to get a, uh, an op-ed published around the country uh, <laughs> in terms of what we were about to face and what people needed to do. And none of the editors, you know, accepted it, thought it was relevant. And now they're writing about it every day. And now the reporters are calling again. And, and you may have seen a few days ago, I was quoted in the New York Times. Um, with Actually, I was really pleased with the quote because I think one of the things that has become absolutely apparent to anyone who has <laughs> half a brain is there's when it comes to how we can fight this virus, there's not a list of things. There, I mean, there are a list of things you can do, but if you prioritize that list, the, the number one, two, and three things are getting the vaccine. Correct. And all of the other things pale in comparison as it relates, all you've got to do is go back to where we were before the vaccine. All you've got to do looking at nursing homes is to go back to December, just before and just as the vaccine was were being rolled out and, and to see the 6,000 weekly deaths in nursing homes. Correct. Correct. And, and, and we were doing all sorts of things in nursing homes. We were wearing masks. We were washing hands. We were isolating people. And we had 6,000 deaths. Correct. We vaccinated the residents and the number of deaths has dropped precipitously. We vaccinated uh, many of the staff. We knew it was going to be a problem getting them all vaccinated. We were respectful of that. We didn't want to force that upon people. But after several months of seeing the impact of the vaccine and the, the, the absolute difference of life and death that this vaccine brings to our society and to the world, I, I have, as, a, as a scientist, as a clinician, as a physician, as someone who took the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, not mandating the vaccine to me creates harm. I can relate to that. It's, I just want to comment on something you just said. And, and um, at the beginning of uh, COVID, or, um, well, not at the very beginning, but as you said, as the media coverage died down, I tried to get an op-ed published. And if you couldn't, can't get an op-ed published, I feel so much better about the fact that I couldn't get an op-ed published. And it was, the title of it was, Let's Not Forget Our Nursing Homes, because the media frenzy passed by nursing homes. And as it has many times over the years when there's some catastrophic event, which I did write in um, some article, will the, the pandemic be that catastrophic event that will therefore not have the media pass it by as it has when there have been hurricanes and heat waves and other things in other parts of the country, but it looks like that did happen. And I could not get that um, 
I could not get that um, op-ed published anywhere. I tried in many, many times. I was very disappointed, but now I feel a lot better. <laughs> well, and, and you know, even though, thankfully, the deaths died down, and, and because of that, the, the stories, you know, died down too, um, I continue to believe that over the next couple of years, as we learn more about everything that happened in long-term care due to the pandemic, these stories aren't going away. They're not going to be on, on the front pages often. They're not going to be every day. But there are enough tragic stories out there that have really yet to be uncovered. And you combine that with the fact that nursing homes are imperfect places uh, that do have issues, as well as the fact that you've got an industry that continues to say, give me money. Right. And a government that says, well, what are we getting in return? Um, I think that we just have to have some patience, which is hard for folks like you and I. Right. <laughs> right. But I think if we're, if we're patient, those stories will come. And our opportunities to give a real voice to those issues are going to be there in the coming years. I, I believe, and I've spoken with many people and have had some wonderful conversations on the podcast, and they believe, as do I, as you probably do, that there will always be a need for nursing homes in our, in our society for the people who are most ill and maybe can't get um, treatment and care at home for whatever reason, which is a separate conversation. But um, nevertheless... I said at the beginning of COVID also that nursing home owners, providers, operators, you, you know, are going to have to kind of have a little bit of a different mindset if they're going to remain financially solvent. And uh, sure enough, that's kind of what's happening. Their mindset, I mean, there are people who have changed their mindset. I'm not saying all, but the preponderance have not. And uh, they're kind of on life support. And being that they're on life support, what, what do you do? You cut back even further, right? To, to remain, you know, so that you can remain afloat. And so then what happens? Then the services are cut even further, then the care is even worse. And that to me is, is one of the, the greatest tragedies of all of this is that that's what's happening. Um, you know, people don't want to go to nursing homes, rightfully so. They didn't want to go before, but now it's worse. And uh, there are nursing homes with many empty beds with empty units. And, you know, I've seen it firsthand in the last several months. I mean, they're just, you know, they just cutting, 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 cutting. And that just, if there is another outbreak, it's just going to, you know, be like a wildfire, like a California wildfire, wildfire and spread the same way it did initially. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I think we have, um, we have certainly have our work cut out for us in that regard. And I know you're closer to the uh, policy maker level now. So I guess we're counting on people like you to carry that message. And uh, it's kind of a Herculean effort, but I think there's nobody better that's up to that challenge. But we're going to take a break on Senior Straight Talk and we'll come back to, um, to continue this great conversation.
Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with Mike Wasserman, Dr. Mike Wasserman, the uh, the Twitter celebrity, <laughs> but the media celebrity uh, that, as you once told me when we first spoke, that before COVID, you certainly didn't have this notoriety. But thank you for being that voice and bringing it to national prominence um, because it's, it's a very necessary one. And as we were talking in the first segment, about how, you know, the media has kind of passed by the nursing home issue a little bit, not a little bit, a lot from the initial stages. Now that the Delta variant is kind of uh, resurfacing, uh, the media is kind of um, paying a little more attention again. There was an article in the New York Times, um, an op-ed actually, uh, that was uh, nobody wants to go to a nursing home or something like that. And uh, you said you were quoted. So tell me about the article you were quoted in. Well, I, I was quoted basically saying that we need to mandate the vaccine. That, that really there's no, there's no choice about that. I, at the same time, that article on, I, I didn't like the title, um, but of the nursing home, no one wants to live in a nursing home article because it, it contributes to this sort of, uh, fallacy that that or fallacy is not even the best word. Theoretically, I understand no one wants to live in a nursing home, but I can tell you that many nursing home residents are grateful for the care they receive and recognize that given the alternative of living at home without that kind of care, that they're much better off living in a nursing home. I and agree. so. I think you can parse words and say no one wants to live in a nursing home, but I will still say that 80% of people living in nursing homes need to be there. And that if you try to approximate the care nursing home delivers in someone's own home, you'd be spending over $20,000 a month. 
I don't know if and I agree with you there. This this may be the first time we've ever really disagreed. I don't think it would. Be, I don't know that it would be eighty percent. I think that's a high number um, of, of people. I do believe, as as said earlier, that there will always be a need for nursing homes in our country. There will always be a place for them. Um, but I have seen very um, medically involved people get great care at home. Um, trach patients, people who are ventilator dependent. I've seen them live at home and get great care. Um, and what's you know, the cost? Um, I, I, I will look into that and get back to you with the number. How's that? I'm a, keep in mind, I am, I'm a bit of an idiot savant when it comes to numbers. Okay. Um, and so, you know, when I say $20,000 a, a month, that's probably you. You will probably be quite um, surprised when you delve in. And, I mean, I don't disagree that people can be managed at home. Um, it just costs. And I think as a society, we can choose to spend $20,000 a month, but that money's going to have to come from somewhere. Um, and, you know, we don't want being able to stay at home just be for, to just be for the wealthy. Um, Agree. It's we are we already have great disparities amongst nursing homes, which is something else I've really gotten involved with and interested in when looking at the fact that um, when you look for a correlation between quality care and percentage of minorities in nursing homes, the the numbers are profound. Correct. That the worst nursing homes predominantly are filled with people of color. And, and we've seen so much through the pandemic um, as it relates to disparities that I just hope and pray we, we learn from that. And not only are the residents in the worst nursing homes uh, predominantly of color, but the healthcare workers, not only in the worst nursing homes, but in, I would say, a good number of the nursing homes, especially in urban areas, um, are also people of color or from other cultures. No, actually, and actually, that was something that back in December, I think I was quoted somewhere uh, as we were getting having some delays in getting the vaccine out that the need to focus on nursing home residents and the poor women of color who care for them um, was, was a key, was of key importance. And there's no question that when you look at the frontline staff of nursing homes, you're predominantly talking poor women of color and you're talking about people who lack adequate wages and benefits and also, also lack the degree of respect that they deserve for the incredible work that they do. And something I've continued to try to message, it's funny because I have some, a lot of my colleagues say, gosh, how come you're always quoted in these articles bashing nursing homes and the nursing home industry and you're not talking about the good work that they do? And I'm like, well, unfortunately, if you could be a fly on the wall with my conversations, I am always telling reporters about the great work that the the staff do and the incredible people they are. It's just that that doesn't get into the stories and doesn't make headlines. Oh, and 
That's because that's a because uh, that's not really where the the draw is going to be. That that's un- and that's why uh, people are somehow you know sometimes skeptical of media because obviously they're going to report things that's going to draw the audience, and unfortunately, more often than not, negative draws the audience more than positive. And to pair the fact that there are, people are having negative experiences in nursing homes, along with the fact that most people think of nursing homes as negative places, uh, kind of go hand in hand. And that, you know, corroborates the supporting. You know, you know as, as I tell my daughters, if life were easy, it wouldn't be life. If, 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 you know, if the me- this is how the media works. We can complain about it, but it's the way they work. And they, it works. I was listening to uh, something today saying that, you know, the media was blasting the administration, the, the previous administration for how it responded to COVID. And now the media is blasting the present administration. And that is what the media does. But, you know, we can complain, but I, I'm someone who believes in, developing solutions and and solutions around effective messaging so if if we have a message and that message isn't being picked up and discussed then we have to work on our messaging and that's why you do what you do with your podcast and with your writing and I do what I do with the same and I think that's the key that all of us in the field of long-term care medicine geriatrics we all need to continue messaging and and not give up uh, because over time, our, our messages will be heard. It just, again, we have to be patient to some degree. Um, and a little bit of impatience is not always bad, as you alluded to. I have, I have been a pretty uh, fearless advocate who at times was perceived, again, by a lot of my colleagues as uh, stepping on toes and 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 sort of sticking my neck out there and and at this and that said uh, to a point that works and and that is the balance we have to speak the truth we can't give people a pass but once they hear us I think it's really important and this is where I think a lot of advocates get lost they're so they're so zealous about advocacy that when they get opportunities to make a difference, they continue to be the zealot advocates rather than take a step back and try to work within the system. And again, I, that's a bit of a broad brush. And I know a lot of folks will jump down my throat over that. Um, but I don't think you can have it both ways and you've got to make some good faith attempts to work within the system. And clearly when that doesn't work, then you have to be willing to go back to firing some shots across the bow. That's just, it's, as you said, that's politics, that's life. And, and it's not clean. No, it's not. And it's interesting that you, that you framed it that way because I myself probably have fallen into that several times, as you could probably well imagine from the times we've spoken and knowing me a little bit, that uh, probably most people could figure that out, that um, there are times I'm just so incensed uh, that there, I just don't, I feel like, listen, I have to just keep 
hammering this, hitting this home because people's lives are at stake and otherwise you people don't seem to be getting it. And so then I become, and I wrote about this even in my very, very first book. It's like um, being a uh, fish swimming upstream against an indomitable current. I mean, uh, it's been a very hard journey. And um, as uh, somebody said to me, it's easier for some people because of their position as either as a doctor, as a male, um, somebody who has a, a different level of stature, depending on you know, what, their, what their level is even in the medical profession. Um, and, and that is probably easier for some people than it is for somebody like me, who's a speech and language pathologist, and people are like, listen, why don't you stay in your lane and shut up? <laughs> and um, well, it's not your business. And um, why don't you just stay in your lane? And I'm like, listen, I just, uh, I, I can't see that. And so I always tell this story and I wrote about it in, in this, this, this latest book that it was in the late 1990s, I think. I was working in this nursing home. They had a vent unit. And uh, that was my specialty, uh, working with people who are ventilator dependent and who had trachs. It's actually a passion. And I came to the uh, rehabilitation department one day and uh, proudly announced that they were going to kill somebody. I said, they're going to kill somebody here. And the director of rehabilitation at the time said, you know, Phyllis, if you really believe that, you should call the state or speak to the administrator, but you have to make a decision. Either you're going to be part of the solution or part of the problem. And how many people do I see who, when I tell them things, they, and I'm sure you experience this, they shrug their shoulders. They say, that's the way it is. What are we supposed to do? I'm one person. And I just, that's just intolerable to me. No, I agree. And, 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 you know, the one thing from this discussion that I would message to folks, you and I share one trait and that is passion. We are passionate about what we know about and who we care about. And there are many, many field people in the field of geriatrics and the long-term care and, you know, and amongst caregivers who, who are passionate. And, and I think the challenge for all of us is to combine that passion with facts and information um, and recommendations and, and, and to just share it. And, and, you know, there's, there's a balance. You, you don't want to yell with your passion, but if you learn to state your beliefs passionately, um, especially about something that affects so many people's lives, um, I, think, I think we all have opportunities. And, you know, it's, I will say it's something I've learned myself. When I was younger, my passion uh, sometimes got me ahead of myself, and I'd be a bit of a bull in a china shop and that sometimes turn people off. I think as the gray hairs come and the experiences come, um, I've learned how to modulate that passion and, and temper it a bit. And I was, I was on a call the other day with the leading age and the comment at the end was that my caring and, and compassionate passion uh, and, tra- and willingness to be honest and transparent uh, really was of value and comes through. And it, it made me realize that's probably one of the reasons I keep getting 
reporters calling me and certainly why, you know, I, I, I keep ending up being interviewed on TV is, is I've, I've found the, that voice that combines the passion with the expertise. And I, I got to say, you know, at 62, it's taken me about 62 years to figure out how to do that. Okay. And, and as someone who reflects on himself all the time, uh, I would encourage others to look for that same combination and ability because we need all of our voices out there. And, and we, yeah, we need to be cognizant of how we're perceived. I agree with you 500%. I think in a forum like this one on the podcast, or if I'm in other conversations with other professionals outside of the nursing home environment, I do a far better job. Um, I'm a couple of years ahead of you age-wise. So I haven't yet figured that out in the nursing home environment, really, when I'm faced with situations that are really putting people's lives at risk. It just, I, I don't start out at, uh, you know, at, at the high octave at, at level eight, you know, on the, uh, or 10 on the Richter scale. I start out, you know, talking reasonably and explaining. I love to educate, so I'm always educating and explaining the reasons why I'm saying these things. It's not that I just came along and think that this is the way to do it because I said so, um, because who cares, really? But, I, you know, I always give the reason, the basis, the, you know, how it's going to impact, not how it's going to be a win-win for everybody, the resident this care staff, the facility, I always round it out that way, but that doesn't mean that people still want to hear it. And then when I see the situation persisting, then kind of, you know, it escalates and escalate, escalates until I get to that point where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's, uh, I haven't really found that yet. Good for you. But outside of the nursing home environment, outside of the clinical situation, I certainly can do that. Excellent. You know, I, I guess I need to, I guess I need to work on that further. But in actuality, while I I have seen my the benefit of me having to be back in an environment, even though I, I question it sometimes, I realize that what I'm bringing to the table is helping people, even if it's one person or 10 people or an entire building. But that is not really where I want to focus my attention. It's more kind of out here and, and making a difference on a, on a global scale that people can bring those experiences to the conversation that we were talking about earlier so to impact change on a broader scale. Because it's not going to happen in a one-on-one situation. And you had that experience many years ago in uh, being CEO of a nursing home chain, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I, you know, I mean, I, like we said, I don't want to bash nursing homes, particularly the owners and the operators. I mean, they, they, many of them are doing the best they can. Some of them are trying to do things better and differently. Uh, they, there are financial constraints now, especially there are more difficulties because of the financial constraints, but there, as I always say, they're in the taking care of people business. So as opposed to, I don't know, making cell phones, you know? <laughs> so 
if, if you're truly in the taking care of people business, then you have to find a way to do a better job in taking care of people, despite the constraints that are in front of you. Yes? Yes. No, no question. You know, so that's, uh, that's where, we, where we are. But listen, Mike, this has been great. I know you have to go. You gave me a, uh, a small window of time, and I appreciate it. So we've uh, come to the end of that. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll keep doing this every so often, I, I promise. Uh, okay, I'll, I'm going to hold you to that. I don't know how often that'll be, but whatever. So please join me on the next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. This is Phyllis Amon signing off. And please remember to like, click, and share the episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.